inside, we know that it'll cost us something to open up our lives and share our faith. But this is our call, to open our lives and to share Christ with the people close to us. That's why we're running Alpha. It's a course over several weeks where you can invite your friends to explore life's biggest questions over a meal. It's a chance for you to invite that person into an honest conversation about faith. Alpha, who will you invite?
start with a story. When I was in college, I owned a sports car. College sports car. Uh, you see where this is going. This does not end well. College sports car. Uh, uh, really, I should say the car owned me, and it was really fun to drive. I loved it. I washed it, waxed it, put gas and friends in it, and made sure the music worked, and that's pretty much all I did. For everything else, I took it to a mechanic. I knew how it worked, but he actually made it work. He made it possible to keep that car running. And one summer, I lent my uh, sports car to my sister. I was going to be up at uh, the University of Washington in Seattle studying linguistics in this very intensive 10-week program. And rather than drive the sports car from uh, San Jose up to uh, Seattle, uh, I left it there and, uh, in, in her care. She had a little VW, but she had the sports car now, too. At the end of the summer, she called me to tell me some good news and some bad news about my car. She said, first of all, the good news, uh, that little red light, uh, that annoying red light, it, it's out, so that's good. Uh, <laughs> the annoying red light finally went out. But the bad news is that the car won't start after it made that weird metallic sound. So you can imagine me hearing this thinking, oh no, somehow my engine is blown up. Uh, well, it turns out the gas station attendant who helped her top up the radiator while flirting with her neglected, after filling the radiator uh, with water, neglected to put the cap back on. Uh, so summer's being hot in Silicon Valley. The radiator emptied, the head warped, and the pistons and cylinders seized up. It was a problem of epic proportions uh, for a college kid. And ultimately, uh, money exchanged hands, and I was able to <laughs> rebuild the engine and, and continue driving that car. And just like cars break down, we break down too. Just like cars break down, we break down too. Life's like that, isn't it? It's fine one minute, and then it goes badly wrong. All of us have had experiences like this. Things are going great, and then they're not. Uh, COVID-19, fires, wars, TikTok, whatever. Whatever the latest uh, headline is. We didn't expect it, but here it is. got to deal with it. Uh, it's that doctor's report. It's that job situation. It's uh, whatever it is. In fact, all of us have sort of a built-in sense that uh, even when it's going well in life, it's not going to last for very long. Even when things go well, we have this nagging feeling that there's more to life. And we think that maybe that more is going to be worse. Gee, it's going so well right now. Something's going to go wrong. Uh, so this is the, the challenge of us being us. And so when we ask this question, what is the gospel? Uh, we start with this premise. Here's the first point of the morning. We believe the gospel of Jesus makes the most sense in explaining life. Why is life like it is? The gospel of Jesus, we think, makes the most sense in explaining why life is what it is. Uh, Jesus answers the questions about the meaning and purpose of life and our part in it. He answers the question of, of meaning and purpose and also describes the problems with us getting connected to our true meaning and our true purpose and being able to take fully part of this life that we were created for. Uh, years ago, I heard Nobel laureate David Baltimore, then president of Caltech, uh, speaking at a dedication ceremony. Uh, it was a new science building. It, they were 
dedicating a bishop's school. And he stands up and he says, Science answers all the questions of meaning and purpose in life. He said, isn't it great that we're dedicating the first building in several decades on this campus to science, which of course answers all the questions of meaning and purpose in life. I'm sitting there in the audience and I'm thinking, I don't, I don't agree with that. I mean, what's there not to like about science? I love science. Uh, you remember Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman uh, was one of the top 10 physicists voted uh, by science writers as one of the top 10 physicists in the 20th century. Uh, he was also a Nobel laureate, also at Caltech. Uh, during the Challenger explosion, he was the one who figured out the O-ring issue that caused that uh, malfunction. Uh, he was a genius. He was a phenomenal conga player, bongo player. Uh, he was a wild man. He was a self-declared atheist. Uh, he had a sister uh, who died recently at age 93. Nine years junior, uh, she grew up idolizing her older brother. And uh, one time, I think he was probably in, in high school, he wakes her up at night, takes her out so she can see the aurora. In, that, in this case, it was the aurora borealis. And she said, look at that. And she was amazed by it. She said, why? How? And he said, we don't know. Well, later in life, she aspired to be a scientist as well. And so she had a conversation with her brother. It went like this. Look, I don't want us to compete so let's divide up physics between us. I'll take auroras, and you take the rest of the universe. Which is very, a very a clever, cute way of saying, I can't compete with my older brother, who's one of the geniuses on the planet when it comes to science. I'll take a small piece, the aurora, which fascinates me, and I'll work on that. You take everything else, which of course he did. Now she was the first person to describe the effect that creates the aurora borealis, or in the southern hemisphere, the aurora australis. It's a solar wind interacting with the magnetic sphere surrounding the Earth. A solar wind are charged particles escaping from the upper atmosphere of the sun's uh, atmosphere, colliding with uh, the magnetosphere surrounding the Earth and creating this incredible effect. Don't you love that? I love the fact that somebody can figure that kind of thing out. I, I love science. Science is a wonderful gift from God. It certainly represents some of the highest achievements of humanity, but ultimately it's a wonderful gift from God. It answers lots of important questions to satisfy our God-given curiosity, but it does not tell us the meaning and purpose of life. Only God can tell us that. Now that might be an outrageous thing to claim uh, in a community and a congregation filled with scientists, but the scientists I know would say, of course that's true. My highest aspiration as a scientist is to honor and glorify God and bless people. To let my curiosity run wild as I explore this incredibly beautiful and wonderfully made world. And so science is about mechanisms and processes that support life. God inspires scientists who map and, and describe the human genome, for example. Three billion uh, letters that, that define, uh, describe the human genome. God inspires scientists who can do that. But also God inspired the psalmist who tells us the origins of the human genome. We see this in Psalm 139. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Doesn't that ring true to you? 
And the scientists I know, the men and women who practice science on a daily basis professionally, uh, who follow Jesus would say, yes, exactly. I praise Him because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The universe, the world in which we live is fearfully and wonderfully made. His works are wonderful. I know that full well. It allows me to do my best work. So the first big idea of the morning is this. We believe the gospel of Jesus makes the most sense in explaining life. Second point is this. When we understand that life is a gift from God, we experience it differently. When we understand that life is a gift from God, and He knows how to make it work, we experience it differently. It stops being simply a burden or a a random sampling of events and experiences And we see it as a gift, not a burden, but a gift from God himself. And God himself will help us navigate our way through life, facing things, not not withdrawing and and avoiding hard things, Uh, embracing hard things, working our way through hard things in that process of discovery that, that allows our curiosity to move ahead, saying, what is it about me that makes me want to do this, but I do that? What is it about relationships that are so complicated? What is it about the world that looks so attractive and and beautiful and potentially wonderful and then what are these things uh, that disrupt it? So life comes together in him because we're created to be in relationship with him. God is a giver of every good and perfect gift. From the fullness of his grace we have been blessed with every blessing. John says it in his gospel. And So this message is so essential that God himself came into the world to demonstrate it. Jesus, God with us, reveals what it looks like to be a fully realized, a fully developed human being. We're going to be exploring this and unpacking this in the weeks ahead. How could Jesus be fully human and fully God? Aren't those incompatible? Yes, you'd think. In Christ, not so much. Jesus made a series of claims about why he had come into the world. I've come to bring you life in all its fullness. I've come to seek and save the lost. I've come not to judge the world, but to save the world. These are called the I came statements of Jesus. Then there are the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus came into the world making claims about why he had come into the world. Every claim he made was about helping us live the life we were made for. Notice that in all those I came statements and I am statements of Jesus, it's all about helping us be the version of us that we were created to be. Every claim depended on him being God. And in this, he proclaimed and taught and demonstrated that he was indeed God. Again, we'll be looking at that in more detail. Everything he said and did was presented as if God was speaking. And in some amazing way, it didn't sound like boasting. It didn't sound like bragging. It sounded like good news. People were used to hearing people talk about God, but Jesus was different. Jesus spoke as God would speak. He did things only God could do. Uh, Some of his disciples, uh, tough guys, fishermen, used to being uh, in weather, uh, big waves, big wind. They're with him one night crossing the Sea of Galilee. He's sound asleep. A massive storm comes in. They're terrified. They think they're going to die. They wake him up, and and he, he rebukes them. He says, Oh, you of little faith. And he calms the wind and he calms the waves. And I guess goes back to sleep. 
It says the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Matthew tells us that story. Mark tells us this from Mark 1.22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Now the teachers of the law, uh, these rabbinic people, were fantastic scholars and students. So the people weren't criticizing their knowledge. They were saying the only way they invoke authority is by quoting and quoting and quoting other people. Well, Hillel says this. Shammai says this. But Jesus spoke directly saying, I tell you this. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Now, of course, when you teach with authority, uh, your life has to back up whatever you're saying. And somehow Jesus has claimed his character and ultimately his resurrection backed up everything he proclaimed and taught and demonstrated. So this fall, we're going to be investigating this gospel according to Jesus. I like the way Mark opens up his gospel. Mark 1.1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. He lays it right out there for us. Uh, some translations of this uh, say, The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Christ being uh, the, the Greek version of uh, the, the Jewish uh, Hebrew uh, Messiah. Uh, the gospel being an English word for the Greek word euangelion, good news. So what is the gospel? Well, it's a narrative contained in books of the same name, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them gospels. They're, they're salvation history. They're narratives documenting what Jesus said, what he did, what people said about what he did, and how they experienced what he did, and what he said. So it's both a narrative contained in some books called the Gospels. But it's even bigger than that. It's this unifying perspective on the entire Bible, from the Old Testament through the New Testament, all that comes together under this heading of uh, the Gospel. It's the story of God coming into his own creation to save it. It's what Jesus did, why he did it, and again, what people said about it. Jesus fulfilled God's promises to redeem creation and make all things new. That's an ongoing process. The act of breaking the power of sin and death was decisive. The, the, the cross, his resurrection from the dead. Death no, and sin no longer define us properly. Only uh, the love of God and the salvation that Christ gives us through his death and resurrection defines us or describes us adequately. But we see that we're on the way to a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. This is where the gospel goes. This is what it does and what it accomplishes. So in this series, we will approach all four gospels as a unified narrative. We'll look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, we'll draw from all of them as we try to get a picture of all these various aspects and expressions of what the gospel of Jesus is. Why? Well, because we believe it presents a compelling case for why Jesus' followers believed in him. Uh, we do ourselves and them a disservice if we say, oh, they were naive people, they would have believed anything. Well, they wouldn't have believed anything. Human nature has not changed in 2,000 years. The very same themes that they dealt with are the very same themes that we deal with. The same things that move them to laugh or cry are the same things that move us to laugh and cry. Human nature has not changed. These people weren't uh, gullible, naive people. Yes, we have more knowledge. We can describe more things. We can tell them what the aurora is. But human nature has not changed. 
So what did it mean to these first hearers and first readers, this gospel story, when they heard it from Christ or when they heard it uh, from teachers of the gospel or read it in the gospels that were then constructed to tell the story? What was their context in the Roman Empire? Maybe slave, maybe free, maybe Jew, maybe Gentile. What was their context? And what do these gospels mean to us today? What's our context? We'll be exploring that. And by the way, can we even trust the Bible documents that we have? And the short answer is yes, we can. This is a whole other message. But let me say it this way. The Bible is the best, document, doc, <laughs> the best documented ancient text we have. If you take ancient texts, things that were B.C., copies of books and writings that we have, the copies we have date to maybe a thousand years after the event that they describe. And maybe we have six or ten or a dozen copies of these ancient works. In the case of the Bible, we have 17,000 pieces of papyrus or full manuscripts documenting the text. And if there's discrepancies, if there's copyist errors, uh, those are easily resolved because you have so much data to say, well, look, we see how this copyist went off here, and, and, and it would be like somebody in, in English misspelling the word receive. It's an I and an E or swap. But if you read the word receive, you say, well, yeah, I know what they're saying. It's receive. They just misspelled it. So if you said, well, that's an error in the Bible, not really. It's a copyist error. And we have other copies that say, that show that it's spelled correctly. So putting all those texts together, we have text integrity and text clarity. Well, that's a good thing, right? Yeah. And that proves the gospel's true, right? No. It establishes that the text is uh, creditable, but now we have to explore the text, the content of the text, to understand if it's true or not. Which brings me to the last third point. The truth of the gospel is confirmed in how it corresponds to reality. Does the gospel describe the world in which we really live? Does it describe people as we really are? Does it seem to reveal things about who we are and what we could be that ring true? The truth of the gospel is confirmed in how it corresponds to reality. So we're going to dig deep and say, okay, why would we believe this? What does it tell us that is so compelling that demands a response, a commitment on our part? Does it adequately dis, uh, reflect the lived world? Does it describe the world in which we live? Does it, is it... Is it Adequately reflecting human nature, historic events. I ask you a personal question. Have you ever looked at it closely? Have you actually actually sat down and just read through the entire New Testament, for example? I could tell you endless stories of people who were skeptics, professed atheists or agnostics, who finally sat down and read it and said, oh my gosh, I had no idea. This is compelling. This is, this is evidence that demands a verdict, that demands a response. This is a, a conversation from God that draws me in. I want to be a part of it. Uh, I love the way G.K. Chesterton said it. The gospel has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. See, it's really important for us who claim to be followers of Jesus that we'd understand the text and the content of the text in context, that we'd be wise students of the word both for our own benefit, to experience the fullness of life that Jesus promises, but also so that we can help other people enter the conversation with us. You can't talk people in or out of anything. You can, but it's not really fair to them, and it usually doesn't stick. They're talked in or out of 
something by the next person. We want to be, in a sense, talked into this by God Himself. And to do that, we need to open our uh, heart, our mind, our hands to Him as we read His Word and we talk about it together. So, we're at the beginning of a new school year, so let's go to school together. Even though we can't go to a school, let's have an online or in-person conversation to whatever degree possible uh, this year, this fall. And by the way, today concludes uh, Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, Rosh ahead, Hashanah, uh, the, the year. So it's the head of the year. Uh, started on Friday, it, it, it uh, concludes today. Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year. It's a time when people then begin a 10-day period of deep reflection on their own life, on their own sin. Uh, these high holy days, uh, cumulatively, all 10 of them, are called Yamim Noraim, days of awe. Days of awe. Awe because God himself uh, is, is looking at us and saying, hmm, what have they done? Who are they? Are they in or out? It, it's quite <laughs> foreboding and overwhelming. It's, it's awe inspiring that God is saying, hmm, who will live and who will die? That, that's, the, that's the tradition for, of the rabbis. But simply in the text it says this is a day, a holy day, uh, to repent and be open to what God wants to show you about you. And then it concludes at the end of 10 days, next Sunday will be the 10th day of, this, of uh, Yom Im Noraim. And that day is called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And we know about this from uh, Leviticus chapter 23, verses 23 to 32. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you were to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Perhaps you've seen the long uh, ram's horns called the shofar. And so these were the trumpets. Um, and, and of course, when metal <laughs> was fabricated to be a, a trumpet, those trumpets were used as well. Do no regular work, but present a food offering to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Deny yourselves. Sac- uh, uh, fast. From work, fast from, from eating. Do not uh, do any work on that day because it is the day of atonement when atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. So he's described Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah on the first day. Now on the tenth day he's described Yom Kippur. Those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from their people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. It is a day of Sabbath rest for you, and you must deny yourselves. From the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening, you are to observe your Sabbath. Very specific instructions about the date. Now, it doesn't tell us anything about, anything about the content. So really, uh, Leviticus 23, 23 to 32, is simply a hold the date. Mark your calendar. The real content of the events described in, in Leviticus 23 are given in full detail in Leviticus chapter 16. Detailing how the priests made atonement for the people. It meticulously makes the case for God's holiness and our need for atonement. And you can't understand the gospel apart from this. If you haven't read Leviticus 16, read it. And then once you read through that chapter, Leviticus 16, and the structure is very simple. First couple of verses tell you what he's going to tell you. The, then the next verses tell you what 
he's telling you, and then the last verses tell you what he told you. So that's how Leviticus 16 is structured. You get a full understanding then in the context of what we would call the gospel, we need then to go to Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 will explain fully, again meticulously, the meaning of Leviticus 16. Again, this is essential for understanding the gospel. Otherwise we stay at the surface. Well, it's good news. Um, we can be saved. Uh, here's how. Uh, it's really, really good. Leviticus 16 and then Hebrews 9 and 10 and lots of other scripture tell us the details, the why this matters details about the gospel. We'll be exploring again that in the, in the weeks and in the next couple of months. So I'd like to leave you with this. Uh, we're going to look at the gospel of Jesus from a- every angle, but I, w- I want to encourage you to do three things. The first is this, sign up for Alpha. Uh, we have over 100 people now involved in Alpha. Wednesday nights, 7 to 8. We have a youth Alpha that happens on Tuesday nights uh, from, from 7 to 8. Go online uh, and you can sign up uh, to be part of Alpha. It's free, no charge, but you have to sign up, you have to register. It's profound. It's, it's, a, it's honest questions, good conversation, and authentic community. Uh, so it's, it's, it's created so a non-believer, a skeptical, an atheistic person could say, okay, what is this? So we're not talking people in or out. We're simply inviting them into a conversation to reflect on some important things. For the believer walking through Alpha, it's a reminder of what the content of their faith is. And so it's great for a non-believer or a believer to be even in the same conversation uh, through Alpha. So we have over 100 people, but we break people into smaller groups, uh, maybe eight people in a group so you can actually have a conversation. Second thing I'm asking you to do is read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, read them in one day at one sitting, or read them over the next weeks so that you familiarize yourself with the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In whatever format you choose to do that, read through the Gospels. The third thing I'm asking you to do is this, uh, and that's what you're doing right now. Join us in person or, or online every Sunday. Why? Well, because the Gospel calls us to worship God. Well, what if I'm not a believer? Well, if you're, a, you're not a believer and you're in the presence of people worshiping God, God speaks to you. You're not just observing something that's odd or uninteresting to you. You're, 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 you're sitting in the presence of people who are sitting in the presence of God, which means you're sitting in the presence of God. So join us in person uh, or online every Sunday through these uh, months as we process the gospel of Jesus. So I'll leave you with this thought to reflect on for Rosh Hashanah, today being the final day of Rosh Hashanah, uh, this weekend the beginning of the uh, Yamim, Noraim, the days of uh, awe, culminating next Sunday with Yom Kippur. Here's the gospel. That life is a wonderful gift and we need God to make it work properly. Life is a wonderful gift, like me and my sports car. I bought it, but it was a gift to own it. But I needed a mechanic to make it work properly. Life is a gift from God. We need Him to help us understand how it works. Lord Jesus, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for anyone watching this right now that you would speak to each of us where we are, whether we're wrestling with doubts, hard questions, whether we're celebrating your goodness, whatever we're experiencing, Lord, meet us there. Take us where you want us to go. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for uh, the fact that it's documented, that the text itself is trustworthy. Most of all, Lord, we want to enter into this narrative as we understand the gospel of Jesus through, through the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. So we commit ourselves to you in this journey together. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, I hope you have a really wonderful day. And let me leave you with a blessing. Uh, this is from Aaron, uh, the brother of Moses. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you all. May he give you his peace, his love, his mercy, his power, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.